This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. What's up, beer lovers? We are literally back yeah. recording this episode 10 minutes after recording the last episode, because yeah. Clayton literally could not leave without getting his question answered. This is a question that has been bugging me for the last like year and a half. And I could not find a solid answer on. Like, I would think that, and I don't know if we're going to talk about this or not, but, like, I would think that I would come to an answer and then, like, well, maybe God just didn't actually say that, you know? Yeah. yeah. But that just doesn't feel like a sufficient answer. Yeah. Because the the word, the text actually says that God said this, right? Yep. yep. And and so, like... (laughs) Even though, like, I don't affirm inerrancy, you know, all that sorts of thing. Like, we'll talk about it. First, let's talk about beer. Okay. So, I'm actually excited. Clayton Clayton and I are going to share this from Lone Pipe Brewery, (coughs) which uh, Lone Pipe is in Magnolia, Texas, just northwest of us. We we love Lone Pipe and what Uh they're doing. This is called the El Cuero White Stout. It's a limited release brew. It is 8.2% ABV. That's why we're splitting it. Uh, Yes. And that's literally all I know about it. It, The bottle doesn't say anything else about it. That's the governmental health warning. Yeah. The bottle literally says nothing else. It's, It's a cool bottle, but it doesn't say anything else. Nope. Brewed and bottled in Magnolia, Texas by Lone Pine Brewery. That, those are the only other words. And then the, the government warning. Cool, cool bottle, though. Yeah, it is a cool bottle. Super cool bottle. Lone Pine has really cool bottles, though. I, I don't know if I've ever had a white stout. Yeah. So I have I, no idea what to when expect. When you brought it home, I was like, does that mean it's a cream stout or a yeah. milk stout? And you were like, I don't know. It says white stout. Yeah. I'm curious if it's actually going to be white or not. Yeah. So we're going to see. Um, I don't know. I think it's um a little strange. Yeah, it never even never had anything like this. Never even heard of anything like this. Yeah, never. Wonder never it, once. Wonder, never once. Wonder if it's the difference between like dark chocolate and white chocolate. Like I don't know. Even though, oh, Ooh. um, yay! Whoa. It looks, honestly, I'm not really sure what to compare it to. It looks kind of like an amber, but also well, not no, it, like. Well, it's too, it's too, too light, light to, to be, be an, an amber, amber, but it's too dark to be a pale. pale. Yeah. I don't know. Whoa. Interesting nose. I don't even know what to do with this nose. Oh, it's sweet yet herbal, milky and creamy, but still herbal and and almost. Yeah, I get quite a bit of floral notes. Um, Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) Let's uh, go for a ride, I guess. I don't know what to say. Ooh. Oh my god. That is yum. 
Like, uh, that is yummo. That is way yummo. Uh, but it better be world? for a $5 pint. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's like kind of roasted. and Yeah, it's like... I, Are you getting like some kind of like roasted vanilla? Kind of, yeah. Or is it or is it nutmeg? It's not nutmeg, but it's also not vanilla. I don't know. I, I yes, I agree with that, but I didn't know it's cl- it's closest to both of those, but it's also neither. It, I don't know what it is, but it's definitely something you can roast. It's almost nutty though. Well, yeah, right. And, like yeah. It, not nutmeg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, but, but it is nutty. We are not tasting experts, by the way, but... No, we're not, but... I mean, we just really like beer, and we love to cook, and so we... So there, there's a lot happening there. Um, the de- oh. The development is crazy. Because, like, right up front, it's kind of sweet, but then it's yeah. kind of nutty and savory, but then but on then the back it end, it's more herbal and floral. And floral. Yeah. There, a lot is happening uh, on that palate. Oh my gosh, that develops crazy. Yeah, and I cannot get over the color. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what to do with this color. It's beautiful. It's like gold. It is beautiful. Really, and pretty. it's like it's, it's milky and yeah, hazy. Yeah, like that's what I was gonna say. Is it's like it's not clear. No, whereas most like golden ales. Yeah, like m- even look at like, it, look at it in the light. Yeah. It's definitely milky and hazy, which m- might just mean it wasn't filtered, but like... Or it might have a milk adjunct or a cream adjunct. Oh. No, it's not whey. Like, it, it's not that... It does have that kind of like whey mouth feel, though, like where it kind of clings. And, like, feel it on the palate, and as you swallow, where it's, like, kind of creamy and kind of has that, like, wave. It's got, a like, a thicker viscosity to it. And and I'm wondering if you might be right, where it's, like, a a milk or a cream adjunct to create that. Those whey proteins to make it so silky. Yeah, silky is a good word for it. It's... It's definitely a, I mean, just well, look at it. Look, I mean, it's definitely a thicker yeah. viscosity beer. And, and look at it run down the side of your glass too, yeah. right? Um, well, and that's the deal, like swirling it. Be careful not I to mean, swirl it too much because you'll lose carbonation, yeah, but right? It, but like, it literally took like two and a half seconds for it to come down the glass. Yeah. I mean, it's thick for it beer. It is thick. And for a, a beer being this light, you know, like yeah, I drank a lot it, of Guinness last week and. Yeah. Uh, I it, am it the the mouthfeel it's comparable. It's not one to one, but it's comparable. I am genuinely like kind of enamored by this beer. I don't know anybody I've never had a beer like this. I've never had anything like this before. Uh nothing even close. Even milk stouts are so not close to this. I mean Beer lovers, if you can get your hands on this, it do is it. it is an experience. It is worth it. Even if you're not like a stout person, like it's, it doesn't really taste like a stout. It doesn't taste or feel like a stout. And it's not um, dark like a stout would be? No, definitely, definitely. We need to try to figure out how to make something like this. Yeah. Um, because this is a new expression of beer that I've never heard of, never seen before. 
never and I had dig before, it. and I love it. I dig it. It is. So, like, remember when we made that um, the black IPA? Uh-huh. And Uncle Mark was like, you found the the perfect yep. sweet spot between IPA and stout and porter? Yep. yep. This, for me, is a good, like, in-between, between, like, a, a pale amber and a stout. You know, like... Yeah. It's got the mouthfeel of a stout, but, but the, the the herbal notes come from the pale. Yeah. But the roasted notes come from the the amber you know and yeah like it's just a good little triad there (coughs) it is yeah i i really dig it i want to know i want to know what kind of hops is in that you know what i mean because like i can't place i can't place it either but it is so herbal like on the back end and it's kind of citrusy well but it's it's and it's nothing west coast based no it's got to be a european hop yeah, no, because um, it's not east. It's not. It's not western. It's not an American hop. It cannot be an American hop because or an American prominent hop. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it's got to be. I've never had anything like this. It's got to be a European based hop because I I can't place it. That is a masterpiece. It, it's very good. That is a masterpiece. Yes, I agree with that. I agree with that. It's very good. Wow. And you were like, I don't think I'm gonna like this. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. But. Wow. It's not typically something my flavor profile would go for, but uh, I'll be buying that one again. That yeah. is a really good beer. That is fantastic. It doesn't. It didn't taste anything like I expected it to. Nope, not even nope. But as it sits, like, and then on like the exhale, like the kind of aftertaste is a little chocolatey. So I got that, and you mentioned earlier. I think maybe off camera. Mm-hmm. But you thought it might be white chocolate? Yeah. I kind of get that. I, do. I, I, wonder not, if, I wonder if I tricked us by saying that. I know. I, and that's why but I like, didn't bring it up before. But, like, I kind of get that white chocolate vibe on, yeah. on the um, on the after, like, the hang around. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't... Uh, we might have tricked ourselves on that. I know. But, like... But I also can't tell if that... <coughs> <coughs> If that roasted kind of nutty flavor that I can't place to that is is me trying to resolve that with what with white chocolate. No, it's definitely nutty. Yeah, but a lot, nutty. but a lot of white chocolate is complemented by nuts. Yeah, yeah, no, that's also true. Like think about the zero bar, right? Oh, what? Do you think it's nougat? You get some more texture than Well, flavor. I know, but if you adjunct it and then filtered it out, because nougat would be nut-based with silky. Would it? I don't know. I, I would think know. so, just based on the texture that it has and candy bars and stuff. Bro, I, I have no idea what to do with it. I have nowhere to I, place this. I think I could literally sit and talk about this beer for an entire hour. I probably could too. I mean, we've already been talking about yeah, it for about 10 minutes. And we still have another episode and a very important episode of some questions to answer about God and ethic and violence. Yeah. That is very good though. That is very good. Um, shout out. Lone Pine. Good job, Lone y'all. Pine. Yeah. Good freaking job. That's delicious. Greatest thing to ever come out of Magnolia, Texas. That right there. Yeah. I, and that's coming from uh, uh no never mind i did huh what did you say i was gonna say and that's coming from the guy who loves the lazy magnolia but like that that's a different brewery. yeah that's a different, brewery. <laughs> a different place um 
But it, it is the people that put out uh, Yellow Rose. Yeah, and love the Yellow Rose. Mm-hmm. Love the Yellow Rose. So That's better. That is definitely better than the Yellow Rose. Different. Very significant, different. Significantly Very different. better. All right. So let's answer your question. I, I don't... I want the answer. I don't know if I'm ready for the answer. I think the way... I think the way that I resolved the issue is a little bit harder for you to get to. Yeah. I think the way Richard resolves the answer is going to be pretty easy for you to get to. So the question about violence. Yeah. And specifically the Old Testament holy war contexts. Canaanite conquest. And you specifically brought up Saul. Yeah. So you want to recap that story for us. So 1 Samuel 15, um, Samuel, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give the paraphrased version by me. Mm-hmm. Samuel feels like he hears from the Lord mm-hmm. that um, it is time to um, en- enact God's vengeance on the Amicalites for what they did for, to the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Um, yep. And so Samuel goes to Saul and says, I've heard from the Lord. Um, you need to go to the Amicalites and kill man, woman, child, infant, and all the animals. Um, and, but also there's this weird piece in there where, there's another group of people that is staying with the Amicalites or like, Mm -hmm. and, and they warn them and tell them to leave. And so they leave and then they go in and kill a bunch of people. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. They go in and just slaughter an entire nation. It is mass genocide. Yeah. Um, not unlike, I'm going to hold my bias there. Um, slaughter a bunch of people they kidnap the king and then take all the animals despite what samuel said back to israel or on their way back to israel um samuel confronts saul about not killing the animals mm-hmm. um and says that he once again has heard from the lord and the mm-hmm. lord said i am regretful for making Saul king uh-huh. because he turned away from me and mm-hmm. chose not to follow me. Yeah. Which I have my own theory on. Okay. Um, or might have a theory on. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> then Saul like kind of argues for a minute and then concedes and says, make me right with the Lord once again. And Samuel says, nope, not happening. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's exactly how the story goes. Samuel's yeah. like, no. Not happening. I'm not doing that. Yep. Um, and ends up, there's this weird thing where Saul reaches for Samuel's robe. The robe tears. Yep. And Samuel looks at Saul and says, uh, 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 God has torn you from the Israelites. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Which is a metaphorical way of saying your day as king has come and gone. Right. Um, and then Samuel 
goes and looks the king in the eye and says something really nasty. <laughs> he does. And then chops him up into pieces. Yes. Um, and it says in the narrative that he did it in the eyes of the Lord. Yep. Um, That's a problematic narrative. I I don't know what to do with it. There's no question it's a problematic narrative. It's so hard because one, one part of me wants to say, you know, um, you know, the, the part of me that was rooted in fundamentalism was like, well, God said it. Saul didn't listen. Yeah, he should be removed as king. Right? That's the fundamentalist argument. Um, God had his reason. We don't need to know. Right? Like, <laughs> yes. Yes. BS. Um, I, I, I got a call. You know, like... There comes um, a point in someone who's been through deconstruction. I'm just convinced every single person that's been through deconstruction... At some point comes well, across this question. Well, we'll reach a point where the answer, because the Bible says, is simply insufficient. It, well, yeah. But then there's the other argument that, like, well, maybe God didn't say that, and Samuel just thought he heard that from his own bias, right? Yes. But that, to me, even still is insufficient because, like uh, Andrew Barrett's argument to our... Um, series on the Bible, the Bible still said it, the Bible's authoritative, so even if you don't affirm inerrancy, you still have to do something with it. And Depends upon your variable degree of biblical authority. Right. No, I guess that's fair. Uh, depending on where you're at on that scale would depict on whether or not you have to affirm that. Right. <clears throat> but, let me give you what Richard says, because okay. it might help you. Of course, the greatest intra-canonical challenge to the witness of the Sermon on the Mount concerning nonviolence and love of enemies comes not from any New Testament text, but from the Old Testament, particularly the Holy War text. Here we find texts that explicitly command Israel to kill its enemies. Yeah. And so you talked about 1 Samuel 15, but actually in Deuteronomy 20, we are told... That any time Israel's army conquers a town, they're to put all its males to the sword right. to take the women and children and livestock as booty, like as possessions, as property one. Right. <clears throat> and this law applies to towns outside of Israel's immediate, immediate territory. But within the land claimed by Israel, captured towns are to be annihilated yeah straight genocide in deuteronomy 20 you must not let anything that breathes remain alive the the first samuel narrative uh talks about as being utterly destroyed yep yep and then richard talks about the first samuel 15 narrative he says we find a narrative illustrating this commandment in first samuel 15 where the lord speaking through the prophet samuel commands king saul to slaughter the amicalites now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Yep. Saul's subsequent failure to carry out this command to the letter by sparing King Agag 
of the Amicalites is presented in the narrative as a grievous fault, the basis of God's rejection of Saul as king of Israel. It is left to Samuel to fulfill the will of the Lord by hewing Agag in pieces before the altar. Oh, how is that like? Never mind. That's a Richard has a, a quite a, a variety of possible interpretations here. And here's what he says at the very end. Taken on its own terms, the Old Testament obviously validates the legitimacy of armed violence by the people of God under some circumstances. He's like, I cannot deny that. This is the point at which one of the methodological guidelines proposed in part three must come into play. The New Testament's witness is finally normative. Wait, wait, listen before you think about your rebuttal. If irreconcilable tensions exist between the moral vision of the New Testament and that of particular Old Testament texts, the New Testament vision trumps the Old Testament. Just as the New Testament texts render judgments superseding the Old Testament requirements of circumcision and dietary laws, just as the New Testament's forbidding of divorce supersedes the Old Testament's permission of it, so also Jesus' explicit teaching and example of nonviolence reshapes our understanding of God and of the covenant community in such a way that killing enemies is no longer a justifiable option. Once that word has been spoken to us, and perfectly embodied in the story of Jesus' life and death, we cannot appeal back to Samuel as a counterexample to Jesus. Everything is changed by the cross and resurrection. We now live in a situation in which we confess that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us, 2 Corinthians 5.19. Those who have been entrusted with such a message will read the Old Testament in such a way that its portrayal of God's mercy and eschatological restoration of the world will take precedence over its stories of justified violence. So that was so insightful and very well done that now I feel stupid that I didn't come up with that. You know what I mean? Like, because, yeah, that's a very good, very kind of almost obvious point. Um, we don't affirm the, the, the narrative of the, 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 the dietary laws and we don't affirm the narrative of mass divorce commanded in Ezra and Nehemiah. Yeah. Jesus comes back and supersedes all of those things. Just as Richard points out, like the violence in the old Testament, dietary laws, circumcision, divorce. Yeah. Nonviolence, all of it. But uh, I don't want to. I don't want to go down that road. Um, go ahead. But then you still have to do something with the fact that God was okay with mm. mass genocide. So either that means that God is not wholly good, or somebody misheard. Right, and so like you still have the struggle. It it does answer a part of the question. It answers the biblical part of the yeah, question, but it doesn't answer the ethical part, um, which that's what this series is about: is God and ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done the Bible thing already. Mm-hmm. 
Now, how do we take that and justify it here? Well, so the ethic piece for Richard is coming in just a minute. Okay. He doesn't tackle the question that you're asking about what does it say about God that God commanded this in this way. That's not a question that he tackles. Yeah. For me, I resolve that dilemma a few different ways. One is simply, I don't affirm inerrancy. I don't need to affirm inerrancy for me to be um, a Bible-believing, authoritative Christian. No, for sure. I don't think the Bible's inerrant at any level. We've had a whole series on this conversation. That is still yum. <laughs> yeah, it is yummo. Oh it is yummo. I have like struggled not to talk about it as I've been I drinking it. I love that beer so much. Oh my gosh. Here's what, here's what I do with it. Because of all the things I just said, I can look back over my life and look back at times where I said, God told me. And I look back on it and go, you're a flipping idiot if you think God said. Yeah, I've been there too. Why can that not be true for the biblical narrative? When you say something that is in such direct contradiction yeah. to the character of God revealed in Jesus, that is one option. Well, and that used to be my argument. Well, so it is one option. Your other potential option to resolve this would be the argument of the open theists, which would be that, and this would be like maybe the farthest expression of open theism, like just barely before process theology, which I don't recommend anybody going to. I think process theology is no theology at all. Mm. But your other option is open theism to its viable end and that God doesn't know every decision that we're going to make. He knows every possible choice that we will be faced with, but he does not know the choice that we're going to choose before we choose it. Yeah. And because of that, maybe God was learning how to be God. Well, but even still, you have to ask the question, even if you want to say that God's still learning to be God mm -hmm. in this part in the story, mm -hmm. which let's not have that discussion here. No, that is a conversation for a different yeah. podcast. Um, but even if you want to take and, that position. Hang on. Before you do that, I want to clarify. That position is still orthodox yeah. because God's not growing into becoming God. Mm -hmm. God is learning how to be a loving, relational God who has to fix what we broke. Right. And God is learning how to do that. That would still be an orthodox Christian position for it doesn't, people. It doesn't fall outside the creeds. It does not fall outside the creeds so in any category. It's still with it's still in balance. Yep. Um, it's orthodoxy. Go ahead. But you still have to ask the question, or you don't have to ask the question, but you have to deal with the idea of whether or not God's because if that's true, God has to be transcendent um, because he wasn't. Actually, it's the other way. I disagree. No, God because must if, be imminent. Well. 
yes, but also no, because if God is present for all of this, and he sees, for instance, that Saul is about to listen to Samuel and go kill all these people, if he is imminent, he should have stopped it. No, 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 no. Uh, no, you're thinking about those wrong. Transcendence is God existing outside of the story and being able to control the narrative of the story. Fair enough. God's eminence is him involved in the story and limited in capacity to control it. Mm. God must be eminent in this reading of the text. That's fair. You should think about transcendence as God being the author of... Transcendence is God being J.K. Rowling. Mm, fair enough. And existing outside the story, knowing everything that's going to happen. God's imminence is God being Dumbledore. Limited in what his capacity is to, mm. oh my God, this will preach. Yeah, that's Limited in what he can do. And the ultimate expression of Dumbledore's character is mm. in his self-sacrifice. Mm. Ooh, that's good. I told you it'll preach. I love how you just used Harry Potter as like a metaphor to get this point across. But uh, (laughs) stories, man. Everything is everything is an illustration, and everything is an illustration. Everything's its tool. But um, so yes, to your question, you are correct. But God must be imminent because He doesn't have the capacity to change it. Or, or has self-limited himself to eminence right. and therefore in this moment does not have the capacity to change it. Which brings into the question of the omnis. Mm-hmm. It does. Um, or, well, so it does bring in the question of the omnis, but there are ways to resolve that. Mm-hmm. Number one, in this setting, you don't have to give up the omniscience of God. Mm-mm. Because you can just say God knows all of our options but right. doesn't know the exact one we're going to choose. That's still a version of omniscience. However, you lose the omnipotence piece. Nope, you don't have to. You do not have to. If he is incapable or has limited himself to. Ah, but voluntary relinquishment like Jesus did. Mm, fair enough. Fair that's, point. that's a very Jürgen Moltmann way of doing it, which... He must be on the bottom shelf. You can't see him. Um, Jürgen Moltmann is the king of God's voluntary self-limitation for the purpose of relationship and suffering with humanity. Yeah. But it's voluntarily relinquished only to the extent that when he is ready to enact the final culmination of heaven and earth, he can pick it back up Mm. and make that right Mm. whenever he so chooses to based upon his omniscience and omnipresence right through the holy spirit i had another point but that was so good that like i forgot oh (laughs) sorry no it's okay um yeah man i uh, oh i remember what it was um it's the whole can god create a rock so big that he can't pick it up deal yeah, well, it's just that, and that 
that really is just to show us that we're we're talking in terms we can't understand when we're right. trying to explain this. Right. But like that that is this whole deal, right? It's a part of it. Because at the same point fundamentally you have to understand one way or the other. Either uh, I'm going to I'm really going to piss some people off when I say this. <laughs> really, Dang. Really, he just went right there. I'm really going to piss some people off. Either God is wholly good or is he is wholly powerful. Yeah. When you get here and you start asking, and there's going to be some people that are going to push back on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that there is a way that he is both. I don't know that you're going to piss anybody off that would still be here because I've made that when I did my deconstruction episode on Let's Talk. Oh, I guess, this is my dilemma. I guess that's true. Yeah. And I just decided that in a world of brokenness, I needed God to be good more than I needed God to be powerful because if we can be real honest and vulnerable, most of our brokenness comes from a source of power. Yeah. Whether power over you or power that you have. Or in pursuit of. No. I don't need any more imagery of power to corrupt my view of God. Mm. I need God to be good more than I need God to be powerful. Now, I need God to be the most powerful being in the universe. Sure, absolutely. Because I need God to right this wrong. Yeah. But I don't need God to be so powerful that he's ultimately transcendent and the puppet master or author of every character's story. I need the way that I like to explain this is that I need God to be the plot writer of the story. I don't need God to be the director. I need to be my own director. I have to make my own decisions, but I need God to write the main plot of the meta narrative happening around me. Yeah. So we did a whole deal long time ago now on um soteriology and we talked about Mm -hmm. predestination and Mm -hmm. and in all that i was very open and honest saying that i came from a calvinist background Mm -hmm. and a reformed background Mm -hmm. when i started questioning um the reformed position um was whenever i started realizing that if God has ordained every person to be saved, he has to have ordained every piece of their life to get them to that place. Um, mm-hmm. Which means he is now a puppet master mm-hmm. and is fully transcendent. Mm-hmm. Um, I could not get there. Um, and that's what where I started stepping away. More... It was more philosophical for me than it was biblical mm-hmm. for me to step away from reformed theology, but like that was the philo- philosophical piece that made me go the opposite direction. I get that um, because well, I don't other want one, God. Because at the, at the same point, it's so if if I'm making myself lunch and I'm debating between making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or a ham and cheese and Swiss, sandwich. Yeah. Um, I want the choice to be able to choose which one I want. Yeah. You know what I mean? And if God is making that decision for me, 
it's really not necessarily what I want. Well, but even beyond that, it goes back to your question about God being good or powerful. Right. If God is the puppet master and choosing every decision for those whom he ordains and predestines, he is more powerful than he is good. Well, no, he is not good because he also must be predetermining the decisions of those whom he does not choose. Right. Also true. Yeah. You in, in that narrative, you choose God's power over God's goodness. Yeah. And I just can't do it. Yeah. More than anything, I believe that the ultimate revelation of God and God's character is found in the person of Jesus. And in that revelation, Jesus is not a person of power. No. Jesus is a person of goodness. Mm. And just like we talked about last week on this very podcast, at the arrest scene, when Peter cuts the ear off of the high priest slave, which, by the way, isn't it interesting that the high priest had a slave? Yeah. Uh, the institution of not power Became is exhorting power, power once yeah. again. Jesus condemns Peter for cutting his ear off, and then Jesus picks it up and heals him. Fully. Jesus does not exemplify power or abuse of power in any categorical categorical expression or experience. Yeah. Jesus is ultimately good. And above all, I need God to be good. Well, and if Jesus is the fullest expression of God, being 100% God and 100% man, if Jesus is 100% good, then so does the Father. Mm-hmm. Right? The Father in that also has to be fully good. Well, even going back to a closer look from two weeks ago when we did John 6, Jesus does nothing that the Father does not will. Yeah. He is the ultimate image and revelation of God. There is one place where we see Jesus kind of lose his temper a bit. Um, oh, interesting you bring that up. Richard talks about this. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, let's do this. Yeah, let's walk that out. The temple incident. That's where you were going to say, right? Yep. What are we to make of this narrative? So this is where Jesus shows up. There, a braided whip and yep, a a, a whip of cords. Richard poses this question: <coughs> Does it show that Jesus sometimes countenanced violence? Certainly, there is a sense in which the actions described here are violent, particularly the overturning of the tables. Jesus does not politely ask the sellers and the money changers <laughs> to leave, but the exact character of this violent. But the exact character of this violent activity must be carefully delineated. The action is interpreted by the two prophetic texts cited in Jesus' teaching, which the teaching is, you know, right, right there in the context. Isaiah 56 mm. and Jeremiah 7. The first of these, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, mm -hmm. evokes the eschatological vision of Isaiah 55 through 66, Ooh. in which God will restore and redeem Jerusalem, bringing all nations to worship God truly there. An integral part of that vision is the abolition of violence as symbolized by the peaceful coexistence of the wolf and the lamb and mm. the promise that they shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. Yeah. The other... Phrase, you've made it a den of robbers, is an allusion to Jeremiah's temple sermon, 
in Jeremiah 7, 1 through 15, a vehement call for repentance that condemns Israel for stealing, murder, adultery, false swearing, and idolatry. To continue the charade of temple worship while committing these offenses is to trust in deceptive words to no avail, Jeremiah 7, 8. Thus, Jesus' demonstration in the temple must be understood in light of the prophetic passages cited as a call for repentance and a sign that the promised eschatological restoration is at hand. Also, just, and this is what I was going to say, yes to all of that. Yes. (laughs) But this is what I was going to say. In Jesus' violence in the temple, he killed no one. Oh, yeah. So that's his final plea. That's his final thing here. In any case, none of the evangelists present this incident as a coup attempt to seize power over the religious or political establishment in Jerusalem. It is rather an act of symbolic street theater in line with precedents well-established in Israel's prophetic tradition, Jeremiah 27, 1 through 2. 1 through 22, thus is an act of violence in approximately the same way that anti-nuclear protesters commit an act of violence when they break into a Navy base and pour blood on nuclear submarines. No one is hurt or killed in Jesus' temple destruction or demonstration. The incident is a forceful demonstration against the prevailing system in which violence and injustice prevail, a sign that Jesus intends to bring about a new order in accordance with Isaiah's vision of eschatological peace. Well, just think about it. The, The tables in which they were, you know, conducting their business, Mm -hmm. making money, Mm -hmm. and creating more power for themselves, he overturns them. Yep. Right? That symbol cannot be missed. Nope. It cannot. Uh, No one is hurt. No one is killed. This is Jesus trying to make a point that he makes later in his ministry that the first will be last and the last will be first. Yes. Nowhere is that a violent, violent narrative in which people are hurt. Yes. Where, so, therefore, the image of God is hurt. Let's throw that out there, too. Correct. And that's a huge piece. Because what Richard does is he frames most of these conversations through a threefold imagery. Community, cross, and new creation. Mm-hmm. Let me read to you his conclusions based on those three imageries here. Okay. <clears throat> Community. When we read the New Testament material on violence through the focal lens of community, we recognize that the church as a whole is called to live the way of discipleship and to exemplify the love of enemies. Matthew's call to be a light to the light of the world, Paul's call to embody the ministry of reconciliation, Revelation's call to the saints to overcome the dragon through the word of their testimony. All these calls are addressed to the church corporately and can be answered only by the church as a body. The vocation of nonviolence is not exclusively an an, uh, option for exceptionally saintly individuals, nor is it a matter of individual conscience. It is a fundamental, it is fundamental to the church's identity. Mm. Cross. The other wisdom in light of which the community lives is the paradoxical wisdom of the cross. See 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 2, 5. Not only the teaching, but more important, the example of Jesus is determinative for the community of the faithful. The passion narrative becomes the fundamental paradigm of the Christian life. This means that the community is likely to pay a severe price for its witness. Persecution, scorn, the charge of being ineffective and irrelevant. 
When the New Testament canon is read through the focal lens of the cross, Jesus' death moves to the center of attention in any reflection about ethics. Hmm. New creation. None of the New Testament witness makes any sense unless the nonviolent, enemy-loving community is to be vindicated by the resurrection of the dead. Death does not have the final word. In the resurrection of Jesus, the power of God has triumphed over the power of violence and prefigured the redemption of all creation. The church lives in the present time as a sign of the new order that God has promised. All of the New Testament texts dealing with violence must therefore be read in this eschatological perspective. As a mundane proverb, turn the other cheek is simply bad advice. Such actions make sense only if the God and Father of Jesus Christ actually is the ultimate judge of the world and if his will for his people is definitively revealed in Jesus. Love it. All right, beer lovers. We're almost at 45 minutes. Is there anything else you wanted to hit? Oh, my God. I could keep talking forever. Yeah. Um, Do you want to give a final comment? Let me end with... Richard has a section here. He says, living the text. The church is a community of peace. Let me, let me end with these two comments. Only when the church renounces the way of violence will people see what the gospel means because then they will see the way of Jesus reenacted in the church. Wherever God's people give up the predictable ways of violence and self-defense, they are forced to formulate imaginative new responses in particular historical settings, responses as startling as going the second mile to carry the burden of a soldier who has compelled the defenseless followers of Jesus to carry it one mile first. If we live in obedience to Jesus' command to renounce violence, the church will become the sphere where the future of God's righteousness intersects and challenges the present tense, the present tense of human existence. The meaning of the New Testament's teaching on violence will become evident only in communities of Jesus' followers who embody the costly way of peace. So, beer lovers, this is a hard conversation, and one in which I'm sure many of you were quite uncomfortable. <laughs> um, this is Pints and Perspectives. We drink beer, and we talk about different perspectives on theology. We predominantly used Richard Hayes, um, actually exclusively, Um or myself. Or yourself, or myself, because yeah. yeah. I gave my but, own positions too. Yeah, but as far as a scholar, we were following Richard. And we will continue through yeah. this. He is, next to Stanley Hauerwas, he is probably the most renowned New Testament ethicist. Yeah. Still alive. Right. We will use moral vision exclusively through this conversation of God and ethic. And I'm fine with that. Um but this is Pints and Perspectives. And this is a hard conversation that I'm sure a lot of you have your own opinions on. Um, and so I want you guys, and I'm serious. We ask this all the time and nobody does it. And this time I'm, I'm, I'm serious. If you listen, you need to go into the community group or in the comments down below and give your perspective on this. Yes. Um, if you have availability. If, if you have availability to. Um, if not, then cool. Email us. 
Yeah. Our, our emails are down below. Yeah. Um, we really want to hear from you guys on this because this is a hard conversation. And this is honestly a conversation that in my own deconstruction, I've had a really, really hard time with. Mm. This this conversation brought me to a really bad place for a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I want to open the floor to y'all um, to give your opinions. And there, there are two people specifically that I, I'm pretty sure that are listening, Andrew Barrett and Adam Cheney. I want to hear y'all's perspectives on this too. Okay. Um, so I'm sure you know both of their perspectives. Uh, but I actually don't. So I would know Adam's perspective. Mm-hmm. And I will tell Adam to go listen to this section of yeah. the podcast. Um, but Andrews, we've never had the conversation of violence. Yeah. Um, we've had some conversations about Canaanite conquest narratives right. and holy wars of the Old Testament. But yeah, I don't actually know where he would be on that. All right. Both of you, either comment or, I don't know, just text me. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't need, like, but, like, I want to hear y'all's perspective. Group text it. Yeah, for, for sure. All right. Peace out, beer lovers. Bye.